The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you only look at this year's report, you don't, you don't see the 2018 numbers, which I think provide the starkest uh, sign of the fall off. In 2018, there were 1,833 FISA orders to conduct electronic surveillance, like a wiretap, on uh, an agent of a foreign power in the United States. Uh, and last year, that was down to 376 total targets. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 31st, 2022. A few weeks ago, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released the latest FISA transparency data. It was notable in at least two major respects. The continued decline of traditional Title I FISA applications, that is, warrants for individual surveillance, and, separately, the rather large number of U.S. persons who had been searched under so-called 702 surveillance. The news, the data, and what it all means was the subject of Lawfare Live a couple of weeks ago with Carrie Cordero of the Center for a New American Security and Adam Klein of the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. We talked about the 702 number. Is it really big, or does it just seem big? We talked about what's causing the decline in traditional FISA. We talked about whether reforms in the wake of the Carter Page debacle have gone too far. And we talked about where it is all going from here. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 31st. Klein and Cordero on the latest FISA numbers. Carrie, get us started. What is this transparency report and what is interesting and special about this one this year? Great. All right. Well, Ben uh, and Adam, it's so nice to be here with you guys and the Lawfare Live group. So this transparency report is part of uh, an annual report that is issued by the intelligence community. It's coordinated and reported out by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And it contains a wide array of statistics at an unclassified level that pertain not actually just to FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, but to um, activities that are done under FISA, as well as some other national security authorities and intelligence community policies um, regarding how information is released and disseminated throughout the intelligence community. I think there's, there's a few big things that I take away from this new report, which is issued usually every April annually. 
One is just the amount of information. I think it's worth just pausing on the amount of information that the intelligence community releases in this report. So when I think back to when I started working on these reports, the, the earlier prior analog version of this report 20 years ago, really, at the Justice Department. You worked on FISA at the Justice Department. You were the chief of staff at the National Security Division. I was never chief of staff. I was counsel to um, my, the last position that I had at the Justice Department was counsel, but I started out as a law student and then a junior attorney there. And uh, one of the early tasks that I had was compiling information for annual statistical reports. And so when I look at this report, all 37 pages of it in what is basically a, a glossy report that comes out from the intelligence community, there's so much information here that is now declassified primarily as a result of initiatives of the intelligence community, as well as changes to the law itself that Congress has made over the last few years requiring release of so much of this information. There is just a so much information that not so long ago was highly, highly classified and now is all out there for the expert community and the media and the public to be aware of. So I just want to highlight that and maybe we can talk a little bit more, you know, as the conversation evolves, but just the evolution of the transparency regarding this information, I think is really remarkable and notable. Um, the two statistics that I imagine we will spend our time talking about is one, just the overall number of applications, the Title I probable cause-based applications. And that number decreased during the pandemic. So the report last year also had a very significantly lower number of applications than had been conducted in basically the 20 years prior. And I was expecting to see a little bit of a bump this year as pandemic restrictions eased, but um, instead the number went down again. So I, I imagine we'll, we'll talk some about that, but I think that decrease in the number of applications and associated decrease in the number of targets of probable cause-based orders is a significant issue for national security. And then second is the, the variety of numbers that are in this report that have to do with queries or basically when the intelligence community accesses data that is obtained pursuant to section 702. So this pertains to when the government is targeting someone that they believe to reasonably be outside the United States on a lower standard than probable cause. So just that it, the purpose of the collection is to collect foreign intelligence information. And then the intelligence community accesses that information or searches for a US person. Those statistics, there's a variety of statistics in the report that pertain to that, some of which are higher than prior years. And so I think that's probably the second or the third, if I include the just the observation on transparency, main uh, takeaway that I have from this report. So I'll pause there and hand it over to Adam for his uh, observations. So Adam, what are your, what are your big takeaways? Uh, the big picture, I largely agree with Carrie, and I, I appreciated that she, that she reminded us not to take this for granted. No one else does this. No one else has ever done this in operating a secret intelligence set of secret intelligence services and publishing this much information about what they are doing. This is anathema to people involved in espionage and clandestine activities because any information you reveal 
your adversaries will mine for useful, useful insights that they can then turn against you. And so the fact that we've achieved this level of transparency where we've got 40 pages of very, very precise statistics that are coming out every year, I think it's pretty remarkable. It's an achievement by the people who are doing it. It's an achievement by the people who in Congress have mandated some of these disclosures and by the advocates on the outside who have demanded improvements in transparency over the years. And I think it's quite healthy for our system. The more things are shrouded in secrecy, the more skepticism and mistrust they breed and revealing this information gives people a sense of the scale of what the government is doing. So I think this is something to be celebrated. In terms of what we can glean from the data, as Carrie said, the big trend is a continued decline in the use of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to monitor foreign nationals and, and to some extent Americans who are acting as agents of a foreign power in the United States. Uh, and I think we'll probably wanna delve into that in more detail, but it raises all kinds of questions about why it's happening and the potential effects of having the intelligence community just do so much less of this. All right, so let's start with the first big number, which is the rather large number of 702 queries. And this has been a long-term fight between the Congress, particularly Senator Wyden, and uh, the administration, or the, the executive branch, since it crosses administrations, uh, to get this number of Americans affected by 702 querying declassified. And the administration has taken the view for a long time that it can't actually produce that number. Now it has finally figured out a methodology for producing something that approximates it, although with a bunch of caveats. I guess my question is, we don't have a baseline of what a big number here or a small number looks like. So Adam, well, I forget whether it was, I think it was 2.8 million or something queries that uh, involved US persons or of US person data. Is that a big number or a small number? That's a very loaded question. It certainly seems like a big number, but I think in context, it's not actually particularly surprising. It may help to zoom out and explain what 702 is, what 702 queries are and so forth before we get into it. 702 is simply a law that allows the government to conduct surveillance of a foreign person who's overseas, but using facilities that are here in the United States, whether it's over the wires surveillance or going to a provider and getting stored data. Uh, and this of course is benefited by the fact that the US is pretty central in the structure of the global internet. Both just the internet backbones tend to run through here and many of the most important companies are based here. So this power exploits our home field advantage of the internet as a way of collecting information on foreign people who are overseas. Why is there controversy about searching this data for Americans? Well, because it's collected under a more permissive standard. Because the targets are overseas, you don't have to go to the FISA court and get an order for every, each specific instance of targeting that happens. And so many advocates argue that government should not be able to then go to this database that was collected on foreign people under a more permissive standard and search for information about Americans. At present, the FBI and other agencies can do that. The FBI is allowed to search this database for information about an American if it's searching for evidence of a crime, which of course the FBI is quite often doing, or foreign intelligence information, which is also part of the FBI's mission. Now, the FBI 
primarily deals with Americans. The FBI operates in the United States most of the time. Uh, and so when FBI agents are routinely searching FBI holdings for information about the people they're encountering while they're conducting investigations, they are almost always going to be encountering Americans. And so virtually every one of those fairly routine database checks, you might call them, that is the kind of thing that investigators do as a matter of course when they encounter people is going to, is going to affect a US person. And so that's why this number is so high. That there was a one-off distortion in the numbers this year where according to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, searches related to one Russia-related cyber incident we're responsible for 1.9 million of these queries. Um, and so if you take that out and take them at their word, which I think we, we reasonably can here, then the number is somewhere in the one, 1 million and change range, which just still seems like a very large number, but in the context of all the FBI investigations going on and all the individuals who the FBI is encountering and running database checks on, it doesn't seem like, a, like an absurd number. And I think it's roughly what those of us who are following this would have expected. Carrie, what do you think? Is 2.8 million or adjusted for one Russian cyber incident that we'll talk about in a minute, about a million, uh, roughly what you were expecting that number to look like, or is it higher or lower? Well, right. So, so just to, to focus on the numbers for a second. So the, the FBI U.S. person queries um, of this section 702 data. So this is searches that the FBI is doing into the queries of the of the data that has already been collected under court approved procedures. In 2019 to 2020, it was 1.3 million. And then 2020 to 2021, it was 3.3 million. So the number did go substantially up. And as Adam described, it was because of a particular case. And what the Office of the Director of National Intelligence says is that uh, there was a particular investigation relating to the compromise of U.S. critical infrastructure by foreign cyber actors. So basically, this is a cyber investigation. And so these queries had to do with that. And what the FBI is doing is these are not individual one, uh, one at a time queries. They conduct what the intelligence community describes as batch queries. So I think we have to think about this in terms of the automation that is involved in the process. And because there is this automation that is involved and these I think are, or, or there is a portion of these queries that clearly is related to cyber investigations. And so I think that to me indicates that there is a difference for how the FBI is, is implementing these queries that is different than just like querying for individual people. So I think if we think about it in the context of global cyber intrusion investigations and the FBI's responsibility to try to protect, in this case, critical infrastructure, or presumably there may be some other cyber-related investigations that involve these batch queries, then that would lend towards a higher number. That being said, you know, uh, you had mentioned at the beginning, Ben, that Senator Wyden in particular had been uh, requesting this information for a very long time. 
the intelligence community across administrations, um, political administrations had said it really is not possible to come up with these accurate numbers. My assessment at the time when this request was made was of some concern that trying to go in and try to identify the numbers of US persons could potentially have us be looking at US person information in a way that maybe the intelligence community would not be doing Otherwise, I'm not sure how informative this information actually is. I mean, I guess that's my bottom line. Yeah, so it's, it's my bottom line too in asking the question, is this a big number or a small number? In order to have a sense of how informative it is, you have to have a sense of what you expect to compare it to. And I, don't, I find the idea that you could have a single cyber incident that produces 1.3 million queries, so mind boggling. And I find it like, I, I'm sure that's not 1.3 million people, but I don't know what the, what the subjects are here. I don't know, are, is this every computer you look at? Is it every, and so I, I end up thinking, well, 2.8 million, it's a lot, but I'm not sure is it larger than it should be? Is it smaller than it should be? Is it about what it should be? And the fact that some enormous percentage of it is the result of one incident just makes me think this isn't really probative of anything. Well, and, and so as I think about, have thought about trans, intelligence community transparency over time, one of the important characteristics that I think should be a, a factor in whether information is released is how meaningful that information is. And in this case, I am just not convinced, even though I think the intelligence community has gone to great lengths to try to provide some context to the extent they can in an unclassified format, I'm not yet convinced that the meaningfulness to even a fairly knowledgeable audience is that high. What do you think, Adam? Is this a situation where Senator Wyden effectively bullied the administration over time into the release of information that is essentially uninterpretable by a reasonable, even an educated, reasonable outside person, and the result is a data release that actually doesn't give us much to measure anything by. Uh, well, let's remember there was a FISA court decision that required the FBI to keep records of whether queries were uh, pertained to US persons or not. It's not something that the government opposed in the FISA court. And the FISA court said, nope, you can do it. And now they've come up with a way to do it. Uh, so this isn't something that purely came from the, the, the will of Congress or particular members of Congress or the administration. We also have to remember that uh, this process is a learning process for the government too. And they try a particular method of counting something. If it, if it comes out distorted as this number seems to be, there are ways either of explaining that or adjusting the counting method methodology. Uh, and to their credit, the DNI's office has over time explained very clearly when they're changing methodologies, ways in which the methodology might be confusing. In general, they're over-inclusive. They tend to over-count. Uh, because there's some, some scar tissue of being accused of undercounting things or misstating things, sometimes unfairly. And so there's a bias towards overcounting, which is not necessarily a good thing either. What we want are accurate numbers, not excessively cautious numbers that, that give a misimpression one way or another. 
Um, but it's a bit of a thankless task, and that's why I'm glad that we, we, we did kind of start this session by saying thank you. They, they, they get criticized either way, report too high, and it looks like you're doing too much, report too low, and people accuse you of hiding things. But I, I think this number is one area where it will get refined over time, the explanation for what's being counted, accounting for distortions, so that we know what it's actually talking about. So a question from the audience, when we can have, as you've just told us, that we did have a single case that drives 1.9 million queries, is there any significant benefit to comparing year over year overall numbers? Well, I think it's great that they said that, that they came out and said that um, and declassified that fact, which was obviously classified to begin with, so that we know that there actually was not a, a massive increase from one year to the next. Remember that this is the first, despite the fact that two years of, of information are provided here, this is the first year this number has been public. Um, and so this is, you might call this kind of a beta test for this number and presumably we'll see some refinements in the future. Carrie, thoughts? I think that's fair. I think uh, particularly Adam's context in terms of the FISA court opinion that's relevant, um, as well as the fact that this is the first time this particular number is out. Um, they may change it over time. They may report it differently over time. They may alter, you know, these, these systems themselves and the mechanisms through which queries are done and are not static. So uh, we actually want them to adapt how they do their processes over time. So, um, so I think it's fair to say that as long as the context continues from year to year, then you can make, we will over time be able to make some comparisons. Um, so I think, you know, year to year is sort of the only baseline with which we have to, to look at the information. All right. So let's talk about the other newsworthy number in here, which is that Title I FISAs uh, continue to decline. Now, briefing for those who don't know on Title I FISA, this is not the programmatic uh, component. This is the FISA as individual search warrants component of the statute where the government goes to the court and says, hey, we have probable cause to think that Ben Wittes is an agent of a foreign power. Here's the evidence of that. And the judge does or does not authorize electronic surveillance or in some very rare cases, physical surveillance uh, as a result of, of that. These numbers uh, have been, are essentially, uh, they're a, quite a, a fraction of what they were only a few years ago. And there are a number of different theories as to why these numbers continue to fall. Adam, get us started. Uh, what do you think the best explanation is for their decline over time and their particularly their continued decline, even after the most lockdown period of COVID? Okay, well, I will answer that question. I just think it's worth zooming out and providing a bit of context. If you only look at this year's report, you don't, you don't see the 2018 numbers, which I think provide the starkest uh, sign of the fall off. In 2018, there were 1,833 FISA orders to conduct electronic surveillance, like a wiretap, on uh, an agent of a foreign power in the United States. Uh, and last year, that was down to 376 total targets. 
And so it's a precipitous decline, something on the order of 75% or more. Uh, and so what explains this? And, and perhaps a more important question is, what should we make of it? Starting with what explains it? Obviously, COVID is a big factor. And the reason is that a lot of the people who are targeted under FISA, not all, some, can, some are US citizens, but many of, or lawful permanent residents, but many of them are foreigners who travel to the United States with a nefarious purpose in mind. And of course, COVID dramatically cut the volume of people traveling to the United States. And so it was understandable that in 2020, there'd be a really big drop, and there was. What Carrie said before, and what I agree with, is that we would have expected that in 2021, with travel ramping up, with the world normalizing again, the numbers would have gone back up to something remotely approaching what we saw before, and they didn't. Instead, they continued to decline, and I think that's quite surprising. There are various possible explanations with that, some of which the Office of the Director of National Intelligence has tossed out there in background calls to, to people in the know and to people in the media. One of those is changes in how the targets communicate, and that's a bit cryptic, but reading between the lines, we can guess that it may be related to the increased use of encrypted communications that the, that the, that the government has trouble getting the content of, which would obviously make a wiretap much less effective. Uh, and one that they don't really mention, but that I think is probably somewhere behind some of this is the aftermath of some of the FISA scandals that we've talked about on past podcasts and past Lawfare Lives related to Carter Page, uh, the, that FISA application, and the Inspector General's subsequent digging into the FISA process and mistakes that the government has made in some of these situations. There were many reforms introduced in the wake of that. I don't think the intent of those reforms was to reduce the use of FISA, but it may just be that people in the process are gun shy about getting FISAs and that that has just reduced the, the bureaucratic will to pursue these things. What do you think when you see these numbers, Carrie? Okay, I've got six possible explanations. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a top down, okay. So, so one is I think continued pandemic behavior, which Adam covered. Um, that was clearly a big reason as far as the 2020 numbers. And I, my additional analysis of that is that physical search in particular would have been affected by um, pandemic behavior. In other words, people staying home. Um, including targets. So, um, so not just the travel, but individuals here in the United States, I think that might have affected the physical search numbers. So pandemic behavior is one. A second is that when the pandemic behavior changed the number of targets, then the Justice Department and the FBI would have had some category of targets that prior to the pandemic were under coverage. And then they had to decide, do we go back to the court? for these targets. And so perhaps, I'm speculating, there was more sort of internal scrutiny towards going back to targets that had been previously been covered and determinations whether or not to, so sort of an internal scrub of prior targets. And so that I would put in the category of like good government, you know, they're, they're doing, they did, maybe they did additional due diligence on targets that previously had been on renewals um, before they went back. Um, number three and four, I think, get to some issues that Adam described in terms of fallout from investigations and revelations, which would be either one, greater scrutiny of applications by the court, or, or and 
greater scrutiny of applications by the Department of Justice before taking them to the court. And so all of those investigations and and additional scrutiny on the Title I or the probable cause-based applications could have led to greater scrutiny by either of those institutions. A fifth is, um, I think there's an open question as to whether all of the transparency and information that we've released has perhaps affected uh, target behavior. I'm not sure that there's a way to answer that question, but I think it's something that's out there. And the sixth, which I suspect may very well be behind the significant decline in targets is for years and years and years uh, is the encryption issue that Adam described, which is for years and years and years, the intelligence community, including the FBI, warned we that they used to describe it in the terms of, quote unquote, going dark that the use of encryption would change target behavior and therefore techniques that were used to collect information in the past are no longer valuable. And you can't keep going to back to the court to request authority if it's not revealing anything over time. And the use of encrypted apps is so prevalent amongst average, you know, everyday citizens towards all sorts of individuals who understand how the internet works, that it would not at all be surprising if in fact, um, things have gone dark, at least with respect to certain targets. And that is a substantial national security issue. Because if some substantial category of targets that used to be covered now are no longer covered, then there is some category of threats to uh, American security that are no longer um, being uh, observed and investigated and analyzed in the way that we would expect the FBI and the intelligence community to do so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So... Can we all agree that the causes, that all of those causes are to some degree contributing to this, right? That it's, that this is a, almost certainly a multi-cause effect and that you're seeing different components of it. The question is how much each of these factors is contributing to it. Is that fair, Adam? Or, or is it, likely to be a situation where this is one or two of them are are the dominant things going on. I think we actually have no idea, which is pretty worrying, frankly. It's not as if geopolitical tensions have cooled, so we don't need to worry about what our foreign adversaries are doing here. 
we are in a quasi proxy war with Russia at the moment. And that's you know, one of our two primary foreign intelligence threats. And the situation with China is, is more difficult than it's ever been and is getting more difficult by the day. Uh, and they are our number one geopolitical threat. They're very aggressive foreign intelligence collectors in the United States. We need to be covering down on them. I know the government fully realizes this. And the question for those of us on the outside is, do they have the tools that they need to do that? Or at least that's one of the questions. And if they're not using Title I traditional FISAs for various reasons, what are they using? Well, we can see that 702 is going up, 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 and 702 is for targets overseas. That may be all well and good, but there are people in the United States that you can't use Section 702 on. So what are we using? They're not using criminal authorities for these people in most cases because those are not secure and you can't handle classified information through that process in most cases. It's certainly very inconvenient and risky to do so. If we're not using FISA, what are we using? If the content is encrypted, are we using metadata, you might ask? Well, some of the other authorities that you might be able to use to get those things are going down also. Pen register orders under FISA are going down, down, down. The trend is pretty steep. If you go back to 2013, which I'm looking at here, you had in 2014, the high point, 516 targets. Uh, last year, there were six targets for pen registers under FISA. That's a pretty steep drop. Business records, the FISA business records provision where you could go to a third party carrier and get records with a, with a lesser showing to the court, that's dropped dramatically also since that expires, as you would expect. And so what tools are they using to cover down on these people? It's not clear. And we wanna make sure that we have the ability to cover foreign nationals who are coming to the United States or in the United States and doing things that are harmful to our national security. There's an entirely separate question, which is, are there enough protections in place after the Carter Page situation? We've seen public reports about all of the reforms that have been made. I've written some about that, including when I was in government. And I think that's all to the good, but we also need to know, are those things working? And zooming out, there's a bigger picture question, which combines both of these things. What's the threat? And do we have tools that are fit for the threat? It kind of seems like we don't. Uh, and that's a little worrying. And I think this is something that, the, that, that Congress should be thinking about as it looks for the next big FISA, towards the next big FISA legislation milestone, which is coming up in 2023. So the last week, the week before uh, when this data came out, uh, I asked Matt Olson, who was giving a talk at the Hewlett Foundation, about whether the combination of the post-Carter Page political environment and the adjustments to the, the Woods procedures and the additional procedures that you alluded to may have created an atmosphere in which you'd kind of be crazy as an FBI agent in counterintelligence to go to a FISA. It's incredibly bureaucratically complicated at this point. And you may be hauled in front of Congress to answer for, you know, and have a special counsel and a IG investigation. I don't know what you do about that really, because there were really significant errors in the Carter Page FISA situation, and you do want good quality control, but you also don't want an environment in which people will do anything to avoid using the tool. I'm curious, Carrie, if you think we are at the, you know, optimization point of 
using the tool, but using it well and accurately, or whether we may have kind of backed into a situation where we're discouraging the use of our counterintelligence tools because we're so careful uh, to prevent errors. So I'm sure that it had some, some degree of cultural effect within the FBI and the Justice Department, but truly there has never been a time that Justice Department lawyers and FBI agents who work on these cases did not run the risk that any particular case they could be working on would be the one, uh, as we used to say, that would end you up in front of the green felt table. So in other words, I can think back a very long time ago, long before the Carter Page FISAs, when uh, there were congressional investigations over particular FISA applications um, in the counterintelligence space. And that is simply the way that it was, the way that it has been, and as long as this process is around, the way that it always will be. There is just high degrees of sensitivity to these cases, and there always could be one that people work on um, at the FBI or the Justice Department that ends up the subject of certainly congressional investigation. What was different about the Carter Page FISAs was A, that it was an individual affiliated with a political campaign, and two, that the applications were declassified and released publicly for the first time. So I'm a little bit not persuaded that there is a fundamental long-standing chilling effect as a result of that. I'm, as I said, I'm sure there was some, there will be a, a cultural effect. I'm sure there has been, but I don't think that it is the result. I don't think that the result of that is this huge decrease in the number of targets. I think that enormous decrease is due to other things. Adam? Yeah, I certainly agree with what Carrie said. I want to add some thoughts on, on what we can do about this. I don't think that we've that this is just an insoluble problem that we have to accept. Um, I think it, it derives from the way the statute is structured. And, and the problem is that with very few exceptions, all of these cases are lumped together in one big pool that are basically subject to the same process. U.S. citizens, other U.S. persons, foreign nationals, all basically go through the same court process. There are differences to some extent in the time limits, in the, in the exact standard in the law, whether the conduct has to be knowing or not. But by and large, they're all lumped together. And that doesn't have to be the case. We have different categories of people in this pool of potential agents of a foreign power who have different interests that we should care about differently. So on the one hand, we have US citizens, we have lawful permanent residents who have significant rights and protections under the Fourth Amendment. Some of those are people who are affiliated with a campaign or who are religious leaders or journalists who are in very sensitive categories, the type of people who might, be, might tend to be targeted for their opinions, at least looking at past experience, going back to J. Edgar Hoover and so forth. In those cases, we do want there to be a lot of speed bumps. We don't want it to be easy to go and get a FISA warrant to spy in a presidential campaign. You should only do that in the most exceptional circumstances, if ever, because of the consequences 
for our political system, for trust in the intelligence community and so forth, as we've seen with this Carter Page debacle. So in those cases, okay, we do want the numbers to be small. We want you to have to go slow. We want there to be some bureaucratic disincentives. But there's a whole other category of cases where you have Russian and Chinese nationals flying into the US for a month, for two weeks to do God knows what. And those people have pretty minimal rights and interests that we should be concerned about. The Supreme Court has never actually held that you need a warrant to wiretap those people. And so it, it, it's quite conceivable that we would actually want to lower the statutory thresholds in some cases to conduct surveillance in those cases to make sure that we don't have excessive speed bumps preventing the FBI from covering down on those people while they're here. And so I think there's a lot of work that Congress can potentially do looking at this statute and thinking whether the way it's structured, which after all comes from 1978, makes sense given the very significant changes in travel, in technology, and just the accumulated historical experience between now and then. Let's go to the audience, a voice of God. For the most part, once the IC decides to disclose something in its budget or process or is prodded to do so, an internal ODNI process or pattern is established to keep doing so in the future. Thus, for example, we get top line budget numbers each year now from the DNI when we didn't for many decades. Does the momentum of this FISA report, on top of other such instances, bode well for increased transparency from the IC? I agree with the premise of the question. Once you put something out there, it's hard to take it back, uh, especially once it's shown that it doesn't create a catastrophic situation for intelligence collection or national security. The top line budget is a great example of that. That was a 9-11 commission recommendation that was later put into law that the number of billions that we spend on, on the national intelligence program each year should be public. And it's been public, I think, since something like 2007, 2008. No one is suggesting that that has caused the collapse of US intelligence power. If anything, the experience in Ukraine recently shows that the US, US intelligence community is humming along quite nicely, thank you very much. Uh, so I think some of these things are just a win-win. They give the public useful information. There's no significant downside for national security. And if anything, it builds trust in the intelligence community by putting its cards on the table. Carrie, do you have thoughts on this? Is this going to create greater momentum to do more of this sort of thing in the future? Well, when it comes to FISA statistics, I'm not quite sure what more is left. I mean, there is a lot of information in this report. You know, the, the one number that really sticks out to me is the transparency now on number of targets. So it used to be for a long time that these reports talked about things in terms of number of orders. And now because of the legislation and the increased transparency, we have number of targets. And I do wonder, again, I don't, as I said earlier, I don't know that there's a way to measure this, but I do wonder whether number of targets in particular is the kind of thing that is revealing to adversaries and may have some detrimental effects. I mean, if you're foreign adversary um, and foreign intelligence service and you see that the United States um, currently has 376 targets for uh, probable cause-based applications, you can start deducing quite a bit of information from that. Including, you can, you can say, hey, I am certainly one of the 376 most important foreign agents in the United States. If they, if, if they only have 376 and I'm not on it, I, that's, I'm insulted, right? Ben, ben one of your fans is going to clip that statement. <laughs> 
I don't know how how it gets answered, whether or not there is um, any marginal negative impact from some of the details that are that are being released. But I do agree with Adam that once it's out there, it is difficult to go backwards in terms of transparency. I also think, joking aside, I mean, I do think you can learn a lot from the number of targets. You know, among other things, just think about the Russian embassy for a minute. They have a staff that has a certain size. And you can measure that against the Chinese embassy has a staff that's of a certain size. You can do a lot by just saying, okay, we know there's a certain amount of coverage of this country, of this country, of this country. They really only have X number of slots for us. Uh, and that can affect your assumptions about about how many of your people do and don't have coverage, right? Well, without getting beyond just the, the numbers that are reported, it does raise questions, um, which I think goes to one of the viewer questions, which is the underlying um, way that things are counted matters greatly. And so then there is some risk with these numbers being released which again is is as a result of of legislation, and, and so they they have to be released. But I think there is some risk that um, the way in which things are counted then can, depending on how they are explained, can then be sort of further subject for criticism of the intelligence community if they are not able to articulate in very precise ways how they are coming up with certain numbers. All right, let's go to uh, the next question, uh, Voice of God. Given how DOJ and NSA lawyers have interpreted statutory FISA language in the past, like facility or relevance, is there a possibility that the ODNI uses these transparency reports, at least in part, as a way to mislead and confuse U.S. foreign adversaries and other foreign entities for the purpose of improving the quality of FII collection? Well, I would just observe as a preliminary matter that they would be in violation of statute if they did that. Adam, how you, you've been the head of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, how confident are you in the accuracy of these numbers or are you concerned that they can themselves be a vehicle for misinforming or disinforming public audiences? including adversary audiences. Yeah, I think anyone who, and I should say, I, I know a lot of the people involved in producing these things, and my belief is that they've always been acting in good faith and honorably, and that they actually do, do care about transparency and privacy, albeit, of course, from the institutional perspective that they're coming from. What I would say is in, in Washington, people knowingly lying about things is pretty rare because there are very, very significant downsides. And that's the kind of thing it's possible to get caught in. As we saw with the FBI lawyer who edited the emails, he could be prosecuted for a crime, whereas other people who, for whatever um, questionable reasons, pushed for the Carter Page FISA coverage and other things in that investigation that later proved to be unwise, uh, you know, couldn't be busted for mere negligence. That tends to be the way that things go. And so people knowingly lying or having these nefarious intentional conspiracies tends to be pretty rare. I think the thing that that one, one wants to, to check on is to make sure that the numbers are actually, that the true numbers are actually giving you useful information rather than, rather than obscuring more than they reveal. Uh, and that's why I think it's helpful that 
the uh, ODNI comes out and provides some of this background information to explicate some of these numbers that might just be confusing on their face. And of course, there are also opportunities, which I used to take advantage of when I was in government, but people in the classified sphere on the Hill at the PCLOB, my former agency, still have to, to get on a classified line and ask hard questions about these numbers, breaking down all of the things that we're not able to discuss or answer here. What does this actually mean? Is this because of encryption and so forth? I wanna ask an encryption question on the theory that that is at least part of the picture, uh, although I doubt the dominant element of it. Assuming that in an end-to-end -end encryption environment, it doesn't change the FBI's legal authorities at all. Uh, it merely changes the modality by which you would capture signal, right? You would have to capture it uh, earlier in the process, i.e. getting, you know, getting into somebody's phone, having it transmit, for example, screenshots of, of discussions on signal rather than the actual signal uh, signal itself. I would think this would be a very, if these declines in numbers are a function of end-to-end -end encryption, I would think this would be a very strong argument for the sort of Susan Landau thesis that the FBI needs to be working in a very deep way on lawful hacking. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, Carrie, whether there's anything in the data that uh, deals with the modality by which material is being acquired uh, rather than, I mean, the authorities are the same, right? So a FISA warrant to go put an alligator clip on, some, on, a, on a landline phone is the same authority as the FISA authority to go into the phone, the smartphone itself and clone it. Right, so there's no way we can tell from any of this data what intrusion they're doing. Is that right? I think that's fair. From this particular report, it doesn't get into the how things are done. However, although I agree with you in terms of the assessment of the authorities are what they are, the, the court is able to request information about anything that it wants that assists in its evaluation of a case. So, so the court is in a position to be able to ask the government how things are done. And so that I think that piece of things, the how they're done takes place more in a dialogue amongst the branches than it does in the public transparency report. But I am I am a little curious, Ben, what is the, the basis for your assessment that you don't think the encryption issue is a significant reason for the decline in numbers? You think it's more just pandemic behavior? So I didn't say a significant reason. I, I, I think it may be a significant component. I, I, I sort of doubt that it's the dominant component. No, I, I actually believe that the lion's share of the effect is probably a combination of the post-Carter Page stuff, uh, for better or for worse. I think people are much more cautious. And the just bureaucratization 
of the additional layers has, I, I just think, created uh, a desire not to use the process unless it's absolutely necessary. Uh, combined with COVID, where a lot of people are staying home a lot of the time, combined with, you know, other aggravating factors of which encryption is certainly one. The, the other thing is that I'm, I'm not at all sure that encryption would inhibit the seeking of the warrant because it's often only after you've sought the warrant that you're gonna realize what the modality of communications are and that they're impaired by encryption. So my guess is it's playing a role, but it's less of a role than other atmospheric conditions. But I have no empirical basis for that. It's just an instinct. What do you think, Adam? Well, when you're talking about people who are agents of foreign powers, they tend to get operational security advice from the same source. And so it is quite plausible that they would all switch at the same time to something that's secure against eavesdropping by our intelligence services. I also don't think that that endpoint access, what you're talking about, Ben, hacking the phone as opposed to going to the midpoint and intercepting the text is really a viable option here for, for a few reasons. First of all, it's just a lot more labor intensive. You have to know what version of the device the person is using and get them to click or view some other kind of bespoke exploit. It's very labor intensive. It's not something you can rinse, repeat, and do over and over again, like wiretapping at the phone company headquarters. Uh, another reason is that the types of, of tools that you're using to get into these phones are, create, are intensely rare and difficult to create and rely on software vulnerabilities that once they're discovered are burned or potentially taken by the adversary and used for their own purposes. And so if you're talking about hacking the phone of someone who's you know, hypothetically working at the Russian embassy or you think of the Russian intelligence officer, if that person's phone starts acting funny, they're not just gonna throw it in the trash. They're taking it back to their IT guy who's gonna look and see what kind of code is running on the phone and can learn all kinds of things about what your capabilities are from that. So I think there are a lot of potential potential reasons why that's not a great substitute for midpoint uh, eavesdropping of the type that was typically conducted under FISA and in our criminal system. We are going to leave it there. Thank you to Adam Klein and to Carrie Cordero for joining us today. And thanks to you all for uh, joining and listening. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials. Join our material supporters program. And of course, leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thanks for listening. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.